Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Really good to have you with us today. My name is Matthew, and I am the uh, parish pastor here on the east side. Um, I'm going to read to us today from, from Matthew 20, uh, 22, verses 34 to 46, and then we'll pray and we'll jump into our, our sermon from this morning. When the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, that he had silenced the Sadducees, that is Jesus, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one was able to answer him. Nor from that day forward did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, um, as Micah just, just led us, we, we are thankful for the long, faithful road of your goodness over our life. We know, Lord, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies and anoint our head with oil, and our cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy will follow after us all the days of our life. So Jesus, as we hear this word today that you spoke to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, let us hear it spoken to us. And call us, Lord, into your way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the context for this um, really important um, passage on the greatest commandment, the context is a power struggle, an escalating power struggle that Jesus is having with the religious rulers, the powerful people of his world. And this power struggle is going to escalate in two, two days' time to his arrest, to his kangaroo court trial, and finally to his crucifixion. And now you may have like been reading the Bible a real long time, going to church for a while, and you still can't make sense of like who these various groups of people are. Who's the Pharisees? Who's the scribes? Who's the Sadducees? And, and it is, it's worth looking into at some point, but I'll just say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two groups we're looking at today, they are not the same person. They're not the same kind of people. They are entirely different kinds of people. In fact, they are as polarized along ideological lines as conservatives and progressives. Not that they would map cleanly onto those political distinctions, but that's how different. In other words, they don't, eat dinner together, Pharisees and Sadducees. They have a totally different way of seeing uh, the world. And yet Jesus is in a, uh, a battle with both of these groups. One of them had power that was more religious in nature. The other had power that was more spiritual in nature, but both of them had sway and influence over their culture and over the people. And they were the most revered and elite people in society. And Jesus has this argument with them. And we begin our text with these words. Now, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and then our text ends with, and then, 
And then they did not, that is the Pharisees, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So in this little passage, Jesus silences both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And and the question is, is what does that tell us? And so obviously we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about what it means to love our neighbor um, and to love God. But I I just want to begin with what we see from Jesus in this escalating power struggle. Because if you've been paying attention and tracking with us for the last several weeks, you know that almost everything that's happened for the last month has been about Jesus's interaction with those in power. Everything we've talked about, the sermon that Jenny and I both taught on stories of Jesus, it's all been about around this relationship. So what do we see in this? I think we see three things and they're important for our day. One, Christians must be willing to speak truth to power and not to avoid confrontation, but we must do so in non-biased, non-partisan ways. Jesus is willing to critique both sides. There were probably things about both sides he liked and there were things about both sides he was critical of and he's willing to speak to both sides sides without uh, breaking into like the what aboutism that Jenny and I talked about a few weeks ago in the political Q and a, this is so important for us as Christians, y'all, especially in an election season. Uh, in fact, I just want to encourage you. If you are not already listening to the church politics podcast to go listen to Justin Gibney's podcast from this last week, October 21st, where he taught the, the, the title was should Christians celebrate um, after election night? like if their candidate wins. And we, you've got to listen to it because he talks about how utterly important it is for us as Christians to be willing to critique both sides. Uh, not, not to create false moral equivalencies, but to understand that whatever side you're on, whatever part you, party you vote for, whatever, we have to be willing to critique from within and from without. And we have to do so in non-biased ways. The second thing we see in Jesus's confrontation is that confrontation is always motivated by love for the person or for the people. In other words, it's for their good. The point is not to defeat someone. The point is to create an opportunity where love can win. Jesus is not silencing the Pharisees and Sadducees because he has a bone to pick with elites. He is doing so because they have missed the heart of God and he can see it. And he wants to give them an opportunity to change. He wants to, he, he knows that they're harming themselves as much as they're also harming everyone else uh, for whom they have uh, influence. He silences them, not as a punishment, but because if they don't stop talking, they'll never stop listening to the lies that they're spinning. They'll, they'll never hear the truth that he's speaking. And then thirdly, this sort of confrontation, speaking truth to power, this confrontation is necessary for Christians to pick up because God intends power to be used for the sake of others and not for self. And so much of the time, the power that we wield and the power that we see others wielding is actually used in oppressive ways. And we have to be willing to speak up to it. This is probably almost certainly why Matthew, who wrote this gospel, chooses to insert this greatest commandment conversation into the middle of this larger dialogue between Jesus and the power brokers of his day, because he wants us to understand that power is actually there for love. The reason that power is, is doled out by God is for the sake of our neighbor. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the time. The misuse of power is a theme that uh, will carry us into next week's text as well. And, um, but I just want to think about these two commandments uh, for, the next, for the next little bit as we have some time together. Every command, every ceremonial law, every social mandate, every Sabbath regulation has as its core funding principle, as its motivation for obedience, love. Now, Jesus, what he does is he, uh, he quotes the Shema 
uh, that's his answer to the greatest commandment. The Shema was the most common prayer spoken by every daughter and son of Abraham throughout the day, every day. It was written on the doorposts of their home. Moses said that we should actually have it uh, tattooed on the, our, our eyelids so that when we closed our eyes, it would be before us always. Every day they would do this. They'd cover their, 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 hand, their eyes with their right hand and say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. And why would they do this? Why would they say this every day throughout the day constantly? What if you were constantly going through the world and not saying it in Hebrew, because that would be weird unless you spoke Hebrew. But why, what if, why would you do this? Because it was a reminder of why I'm here. It was a reminder of what my life is about. And, and other, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly losing the plot. Like I start to think that my life is about being impressive. Or I feel like my life is about being safe or my life is about getting the, the, my dreams met or my life is about uh, getting a lot of things done or my life is about leaving a legacy behind or my life is about experiencing pleasure. And as soon as I start to make my life about those things, which the Bible calls idolatry and, and those become whether or not it's been a good day or a bad day, whether or not I can sleep at night or not. As soon as I make my life about those things, I've lost the plot. And so every day throughout the day, I need to be reminded, oh, that's right. The Lord is one. And my life is about him and my life is about my neighbor. It's just a reorienting, regrounding, rerouting practice. So how do we do this? How do we obey the great commandment? Well, first of all, let's just understand like what Jesus does not mean by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What does he not mean? He does not mean the greatest commandment is for you to be in love with the Lord your God. It's not what he, his, and that's not to say that like feelings don't accompany the love that Jesus is talking about. It's just to acknowledge uh, that, that in the Jewish worldview, from, from their perspective, that when they were talking about love in this, they were not talking about something that is purely um, emotional. Emotions are good. They are gifts from God. God gave feelings to us because God loves us and God has feelings and feelings are awesome. They feel good. They make life better. They make life harder and all those things, but they are not the thing that actually fuels and completes and perfects and enables the love that Jesus is talking about here, because what is needed is actually the will and decisions, uh, the mind, um, the, this is actually what makes the sort of love that Jesus is talking about here possible. Every truly meaningful relationship works this way. You know this if you've ever tried to have a deeply committed, meaningful relationship with a person that was solely based on how you felt about that person that day. You can't possibly keep your promises. You can't possibly live up to, to what you're hoping to be able to offer to this person because we, we just can't. There has to be something greater. There's got to be something more powerful than that kind of love to hold us into these relationships. Love is fed and funded and grown through ritual, through choice, through behavior. And sometimes, even maybe even most times, feelings accompany those choices, but they can't be the biggest drivers behind them. To love God with my whole self and to love my neighbor as myself means that I am choosing an orientation in myself, my orientation in my life that puts God and my neighbor in my thoughts, in my affections, and in my actions. Now, one more quick thing before we talk a bit specifically about how to do this. Um, are these two separate commandments that Jesus is giving to us? And the answer is yes 
and no. Yes, they are two separate commands because my neighbor and God are not the same person. Ontologically, God is separate. He is three distinct persons of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three of those persons are active, knowable, real, uh, distinct. And yet at the same time, my neighbor is also real, knowable, distinct, um, lovable, made in the image of God. And so yes, loving God and loving my neighbor are not the same exact thing. They are in a sense, two distinct choices. And yet at the same time, they are also intricately and intimately interwoven so much so that the Bible all throughout in the old and the new Testament equates love of neighbor as something God receives personally. It says in the book of he, uh, Proverbs again and again, whoever mocks the poor despises his maker, but he who is kind and lends to the poor is kind, shows kindness to God. Jesus says this really practically. He says, when you are showing affection or kindness to the least of these, you're doing so unto me. In other words, every time you do something that is just good and loving towards another, God receives it as personal kindness to himself. It's an incredible thing. First John says that we cannot say that we love God if we hate our brother and sister, because you cannot love a person who you have seen uh, and you cannot hate a person who you have seen and love a person who you've never never seen. And in other words, yes, they are distinct commandments and yet they are so interwoven that you really can't focus on one without bringing the other in as well. Now, how do we live into it? Um, in the temple of Jesus's day, there were three primary functions. These three primary functions um, were what uh, created an environment where a person could come in and, and be uh, taught and worship and then pushed out in action so that they could live out these great commandments. The three primary functions of the temple were learning, they were worship, and they were action. And they, they encapsulate the Jewish life. They encapsulate as well the Christian life. And so I just want to think for a minute with you, because I think this is a really helpful framework for us. How did those three things, learning, worship, and action, how do they feed love? Like how do they make me a person who can love um, God and love my neighbor? So we'll look at it one at a time. Learning. What does it mean to love God by learning? Uh, it means to like, to be learning about God. It means to be reading books. It means to be dis, uh, discovering and exploring the God of history. Uh, it means coming to classes. Uh, it means going to church. It means opening up my mind and engaging it around the things of God. It is choosing to prioritize my education about the ancient things of God more so as more important than my education about the minute by minute, always fleeting, always shifting flavor of the moment news cycle. So that's, I'm going to say that again. It is choosing to prioritize my education about the ancient things of God as being more important than the fleeting minute by minute, always shifting flavor of the moment news cycle. Um, I know I've said this before, and this is a word spoken over my life. How many hours am I spending a day tracking what's going on? And how many hours am I spending a day with the God of Israel? Actively seeking to understand. But learning is also a way that I can love my neighbor. I choose to love my neighbor by learning about the things that my neighbor cares about and engaging in the history that I may not know. Reading books by people and opinions by people who have vastly different life experiences than myself. I'm listening more than I'm talking. I approach uh, new learning opportunities with humility. I understand that the things that I hold on to be is like just core assumptions that everyone should have, that they are actually informed by my context and family of origin. And that I'm bringing these things into this thing subjectively. And so I need to hold them with humility. 
and actually be curious and willing to be wrong, willing to be shaped. And this is one way that I can love my neighbor, that I can learn about the world as my neighbor sees it. Worship. As I've said many times here, worship is not simply singing. Singing is a, is a thing that grows worship within us. Worship is about orientation of your life. So it is orienting my time, my, my life, my resources, my money, my abilities around things that, that direct my attention and my affections to God and showcase to the world what God is like. And so what worship, the way that I love God through worship is I'm feeding that part inside of me that adores God. I'm feeding that part of me, that part of my heart that loves and adores God. And this is, by the way, where feelings come in. It's not, this isn't just like, you know, white knuckled living. This is actually like feeding the, the part of your heart that feels passion, that, that feels desire, that experiences pleasure. God wants you to enjoy him. Always remember, like every time you think about pleasure, like we be, oh, the church can be so prudish. God created pleasure which means that there is nothing more pleasurable than the creator of pleasure. You're not going to find something greater or bigger or a bigger high or a bigger hit outside of the one who actually created pleasure. And so God made us for these things. And one of the places where this happens is, is in worship. God did not intend for us to live muzzled in our capacity to experience joy or laughter or goodness. And orientation is when I choose intentionally in my will to orient my time. So my schedule is changing the things that I'm doing with my money are changing. The things that I'm doing uh, with my thinking are changing around what God is like. And I'll just say um, just very practically about this. Like um, this has been a super hard season for us to do this in. And I know a lot of you right now who are, who are listening to this are doing so on a podcast. And that's because you don't watch church and you don't come for communion. And I just want to say, I totally understand like this has been so hard and it's really inconvenient. Um, and it's, um, it's weird. I got, I got kids at home. It's weird. You want to talk about weird, like put on, gather the family around and then watch me on TV with me. Like that's weird too. Like it's a hard thing to do. I totally understand. And I just want to say like, um, you, you need to be feeding that part of you that adores God. You've got to find ways, even if, you, even if it's still just like sitting at home and watching worship, just come at 11 and sing a couple songs. Begin again. Like if I've gone a long time without running, the first time I get out there again, it's always very disappointing to me. I can't go nearly as far. I'm far more winded. I'm far slower. You just have, but you've got to begin where you are. You have to get up and choose again to feed that part of you, to orient your schedule to recapture Sunday. I know Sundays have become Saturday too for most of us. To recapture Sunday as a day that it was set apart, a holy day where we choose to prioritize our life with God. And, and it's just, there's nothing short of us just choosing that that's going to make that happen. No one's going to come and make, the, make you do that. Um, now, how, do we, uh, how does worship inform loving my neighbor? Again, if it's about orientation and not about singing the praises of my neighbor, it's, it's about reorienting my resources, my time, and my schedule to prioritize another, which is really what worship is. It's prioritizing. It's, it's, it's expressing that someone is, des- is deserving and worthy of my time, my strength, my thinking. And I choose to do this for those around me, those who live near me, those who live in my house with me, those in our city and around the world. And then finally, there's action. So there's, there's, there's learning, there's worship, and then this final this final thing is action, which I think is actually the, the, the practice where 
loving God and loving our neighbor really meet and kiss because God makes it so clear in the Bible that when we do kind things for those around us, when we show love, even to those who live with us, when we do the thing that we may not want to do in a moment, but we do so because we're choosing another person, that God experiences that as personal love towards him. So it is the bridge. And so everything we've been talking about for the entire fall now, we've been looking at citizenship and what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. We've essentially been taking a course in the ethics of Jesus. What is the kingdom life in the way of Jesus comprised of? And the things that we've been talking about are the things that are involved in action. Us choosing others, us choosing others before self, us choosing to be forgiving, uh, us choosing to forbear with. These are the things that actually uh, this, this, is, this is where God receives our love. So in areas of justice around materialism and consumerism, racial inequality, environmentalism, these are all opportunities, places where we can take action um, that love God. I read a book a number of years ago, which I'm a little reluctant to share because it can be kind of like chicken soup for the soul. But Bob Goff wrote a book um, called Love Does. And what it is, is, is an inspiring um, picture of what it looks like to just love people lavishly, to just choose others again and again, to be inconvenienced, to put yourself out, to take risks for people so that others can experience the sort of love that we have from the father. And if you're just looking for something to be inspiring, now he's a very wealthy person, so he can do things that probably you can't do and I can't do, but um, it's really just about loving people with what is available to you, which is you yourself. Um, I would encourage you to check it out. Jesus says that when we are doing these two things, when we're loving God and when we're loving our neighbor, that the, the whole Bible, everything that God calls us to hangs on these two things. In other words, another way to say it is Jesus says that when we are loving God and loving our neighbor, we are, we are moving in the direction of the good life. The life that actually you and I want to live, the things that we've been pursuing in all these other channels and all these other means, you and I think just inherently by nature that the good life is found in ourselves and in our own pursuits. And what Jesus came to say again and again is like, you've missed the plot. God is a God who constantly pours himself out for others. And in that God is eternally and infinitely happy. And when you and I become people who mirror that, who live on the earth as image bearers of that kind of God, we find the sort of life that we've actually been looking for all along. We find ourselves in the midst of the good life. And so we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in closing, and then we'll come together. We'll sing more songs. We'll take communion. Um, so would you, at this moment, just pray these words with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you. You are loved. We'll see you in a few minutes.